I'd like to show you a picture here of a sine wave. And we've got engineers in the room um, who could probably describe this and explain this better than I could. But what I see here when I look at this sine wave is a picture of Joseph's life so far. Okay, so if you think about it, the very beginning of the wave, kind of the stasis, is Joseph with his family. And he, he, he's the favorite son, so he kind of climbs to the top. He gets his coat of many colors, as we say. And then, boom, we see, the, we see that, that, that downslope where he's betrayed and, and sold by his brothers into slavery in chapter 37, which we looked at last week. And so here you have at the bottom, Joseph in slavery. But, but now he, he kind of climbs back to the top. We, we see right at the beginning of chapter 39, and he's made master of the house of Potiphar. So if, if maybe, you're a, uh, maybe you're a fan or maybe you've watched Downton Abbey, uh, think of Carson, the butler, all right? But think of a younger version of Carson, frankly, with more status, more privilege, more prestige. That's Joseph, right? In this huge home, and he's, he's, he's running the show. Let's go back to our sine wave if, if we can. Um, we're, we're, we're not done with that quite yet. So here you have Joseph in the bottom. So there we go. And, and he's climbed back to the top, but now we see him falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown into the slammer. Bottom again. But at the, at the very end of our chapter, we see that the Lord was with him even in, in, in prison. And instead of being, you know, chained to the top of the dungeon, hang in there, He's, he's actually given the keys. He's still in jail, but he's, he's running the prison. So you think about that, and, 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 and you got to ask the question, how do, how do we find stability in chaos, in, in, in the midst of the storm? So look at that. I, I see a sine wave, but maybe, maybe you got a boat. Maybe you've been out in the ocean before, and that's what the seas have looked like. You know, maybe you're in a sailboat or a rowboat, something non-motorized, and your boat has no stability. And if, if, if your boat has no stability, those waves are just going to, they're going to capsize you. They're going to they're blow you off course wherever they want to, wherever they want to send you. So you need a centerboard, right, Rusty? We've got a boat guy over here. You need a centerboard in a sailboat, or frankly, even an ocean rower, a sailboat that will keep you stable. So where did Joseph get that stability that we see in this man's life, where he's the same guy, where he's on the top or the bottom of the, of the sine wave? Well, the Lord, the Lord was his centerboard, keeping him on point. Even though the, the, the storms were, were there and, and the wind's blowing and, and, you know, he may be on top, he may be down in, the, in the, the bottom of that wave, but he is still moving forward in doing God's will and achieving God's purpose for his life because God is his centerboard. Thank you. That's, that was great. Thank you. We can go to the next, you can go to the next slide. So we're going we're gonna to look first this morning at stability in Joseph's life despite the storms. And then we're going to look at God's hand of providence and God's presence in Joseph's life. So we're going to start with stability in Joseph's life. And, and there's really three areas that I see in this, the beginning of the story here where we see stability in Joseph's life. Spiritual, and it starts, and this is foundational here, we see spiritual stability. 
that, that Joseph did not bow to Egypt's gods. So let's look at verses 1 uh, and, and just kind of walk through this whole text together. Now, now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, at this point in history, as Joseph would have emerged on the scene, Egypt was at the zenith of its power. Pastor Kent Hughes paints the scene by writing, The long trek completed, Joseph descended to the storied Nile Valley and the pyramids. Egypt's 15th dynasty was in full swing as the country prospered under its famous Hyksos rulers, which would have been circa 1720 to 1570 B.C., before Christ. Every morning, the rising sun was greeted with the chanting of cultic hymns to awaken the gods from their slumber, after which the idols were ritually bathed and then sumptuously dressed and breakfasted with morning offerings. Egypt's multiple gods were everywhere. Ra, the sun god, Nut, the sky goddess, and three gods of the air, Shu, Geb, and Nu. And there was the pervasive cult of Osiris and the cyclical observances of the annual rise and fall of the Nile. Pharaoh was himself considered a god, the falcon sky god Horus. So that, that's the culture and the society that Joseph descended into. And, and we see when we look at the story of Joseph, when you, when you kind of look at the, the big picture, you realize that, that Joseph did a great job learning the language and, and the dress, the culture, the mannerisms, even the mindset of the Egyptians. He did a great job assimilating to the culture of Egypt. In fact, Joseph, I think, is a great, great model or example for missionaries who go and seek to cross cultures. And so we, we see that after 20 years in Egypt, when his brothers saw him, they didn't recognize him. They, they thought that they were prostrating themselves before a powerful Egyptian ruler. That's what they saw, a man dressed as an Egyptian, behaving as an Egyptian, speaking the language of the Egyptians. But, we see, Joseph never compromised his faith. He remained faithful to Yahweh God. Pastor Kent Hughes writes, alone in Potiphar's house with the intimidating architecture of Egypt dwarfing him. And think about that. I mean, this, Egypt was a marvel for architecture, which the architecture was devoted to their false deities. Living among idolatrous hymns, Joseph was not alone. Yahweh was with him to effect a mighty work for his covenant people and for the blessing of the world, end quote. See, even though Joseph might have felt alone, I mean, literally, probably the only worshiper of the true God in this entire land of Egypt, okay, at that point in history. Though he may have felt alone, the Lord was with him in his heart. Now, now we may think, well, you know, we don't have the same kind of situation uh, here with all of these false gods that, that people are bowing down to. But let me challenge that. Um, 
there are false gods in our culture that our, that our culture is giving itself and prostrating itself more and more to, and I'm going to call them isms. You have materialism, which is the worship of stuff. You have hedonism, which is the worship of pleasure. You have naturalism, which our culture is more and more uh, giving itself over to, and that's the, the denial of the reality of spiritual truth. The idea that the natural world that you can test with the empirical senses is the sum total of reality, and everything else is just kind of fantasy, wishful thinking. Okay, That's naturalism. So when you go to school, you go to college, take a class in biology, um, uh, maybe going to med school, organic chemistry, what do you think you're getting? What's the philosophy that's underneath a lot of what you're getting? It's going to be naturalism. Universalism, that is the denial of the exclusive truth of the gospel. That, that at the end of the day, okay, spirituality is nice. We'll acknowledge that we're spiritual creatures, but all, all paths lead to the same place. All rivers lead to the sea. All that matters is that you are sincere. Well, that, that's a denial of the truth of the gospel. And the more that you in the public sphere today uh, say, no, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the more you're going to find yourself persecuted as being intolerant because our culture has given itself to universalism. And sadly, it's crept its way into the church as well. So there are gods in our culture as well, false gods, that we've got to resist by keeping our eyes on, on the Lord. But the Lord is with Joseph in his heart. And so in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the temptation and the, the overwhelming uh, paganism of, of, of his culture, he was able to remain stable spiritually. He did not bow to Egypt's gods. But Joseph also maintained emotional stability. And that is, he didn't give in to bitterness. Dr. Dwayne Elmer, who wrote the book Cross-Cultural Servanthood that, that we're going through in ABF 2, he's a veteran missionary and a, and a, and a missions professor, um, he, he wrote this about Joseph as really an example uh, of cross-cultural servanthood. He, he wrote, Joseph, a sheltered teenager, now found himself headed for a life of slavery. He had entered a heavy fog, a mystery so deep and disoriented, disorienting he might not be blamed for denouncing all he believed about God. How could the God of his father Jacob be trustworthy when he allowed such injustice? Joseph's real feelings aren't given. But being a human, he must have experienced intense inner turmoil and even a dark night of the soul. No evidence exists that he ever doubted or was ever angry at God. We read that the Lord was with Joseph. In Potiphar's household, Joseph probably started with menial chores while learning the language in Egyptian culture. You know, it would have been easy for Joseph to have become bitter, bitter to everybody, at God, at the world. And you know, bitterness closes you up. People who give in to bitterness end up shriveling to, to just, a, just kind of a shell of their, of their selves, of, of the person that God designed them to be. And bitter people are closed people. They're closed off to others, right? They, they become prickly and, and difficult to, to get to know. 
But that's not Joseph. Joseph did not succumb to bitterness. What we see in Joseph's life is that he was an open person, an optimist about people even. We, we see throughout his story that, that Joseph forgave those who wronged him, and, and he put his heart and his, and his, his hands in, in God's providence. He, he trusted in God's sovereign providence over his life and even over history. We, we see in his conversations with people patterns of openness and acceptance of other people. And, and, and the, the, the net effect of that is that people naturally trusted Joseph. And, and that was true with his master, Potiphar. He, he saw in, in Joseph such integrity and winsomeness that eventually he gave him command of all his household. We, we don't know how long Joseph would have started off as just a menial kind of chattel slave, how long it took for him to be master of the house. But the, the feeling is it wasn't long, right? Joseph was a young man. And so let's continue to read in, in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. So the witness that was there through Joseph's life, and I believe also through his words, and, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So we see here that Potiphar prospered due to the Lord's blessing of Joseph, and, and God's blessing through Joseph. And this was a fulfillment of God's promise to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, 3, in which God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. So you see God's hand on Joseph, his spirit in Joseph's heart, and it even manifested through physical blessings. And everything that Joseph touched turned to gold. And so we see spiritual stability in Joseph's life. We see emotional stability. We also see moral stability in, in Joseph's life. And of course, this is the infamous story of Potiphar's wife, that Joseph did not fall to sexual temptation. He did not fall into sexual temptation. Let's look at verse 6, B. We read that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and, and we know that he got it from his mother, not his dad. Maybe from his dad. We really don't know what Jacob looked like. But we know that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. It says in Genesis 29, 17. So uh, here you have a young man, powerful, um, built, and uh, uh, just, just an attractive personality. And we read that after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, it would be a mistake for us to, to think that this was not a real temptation for Joseph. He was a young man. He was now in the prime of his life with normal hormones and 
likely plenty of curiosity. And Potiphar's wife would have been a very beautiful, attractive woman to, to be the wife of a powerful man like Potiphar, likely much younger and very appealing sexually. And yet we know that on the inside, she was a wicked woman. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Proverbs 31, 30. And that was not Potiphar's wife. So Joseph refused, we read, and he said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Did you catch that? That's how powerful Joseph was. He actually said, Potiphar is not greater than me in terms of, of, of responsibility here, nor has he kept back anything from me in, in terms of power, except for you, because you are his wife. So, implicitly here, we see in Joseph's answer, was great loyalty to Potiphar, to his master. But explicitly, we see great loyalty and fidelity to God. And so Joseph actually turned this moment of temptation into a witnessing opportunity because he said to her, how can I then do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, would it have been a sin against Potiphar? You bet it would have. Uh, would it have been a sin against others? You bet. But ultimately, in comparison to his fidelity to God, all of that was for naught. You know, it reminds me of David, post-sin, right? In Psalm 51, crying out to God, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, not literally. Um, David had certainly sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and, frankly, everybody in his kingdom. But in comparison to a holy God, David said, against you. I have sinned. And and Joseph recognized that. He said, I I cannot do this against my God. But she didn't give up. And as we, we read, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Now, notice a little bit of the subtlety in the language here that the temptress did not give up And she even tried to tempt him to lesser sins, to put him into a a compromising situation, right? Just lie next to me, Joseph. Let's just cuddle a little bit. How about a a back massage? But he didn't give in to the little sins. Notice that Joseph gave no quarter to temptation. Be be sure, friends, that that, that temptation, and, and when you give in to the little things, Sin will always take you farther than you want to go, right? Farther than you ever thought you would go. And and as they say, it will keep you longer than you want to stay and make you pay a price far greater than you ever wanted to pay. And so Joseph did not give in to any of this. He wouldn't even lay down next to her. So that's something that she's implicitly um, encouraging. And, and, And he wouldn't even be with her, not in the same room. Verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work, he's doing his job, right? And none of the men of the house were there in the house. She caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. 
But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now, now, a, a, a tunic that Joseph would have wore would have been maybe like a long shirt that maybe went down to the knees or something like that. So we're talking about, frankly, almost an attack on him, on his person. To, to, clean, to pull that thing off of him, um, he, he ran. You know, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, flee sexual immorality. Run from it. And that's literally what Joseph did. He, he ran from it literally. Well, maybe there's a person that you need to run from, or at least steer clear from. Or maybe it's a virtual temptation. Perhaps you don't need to be on a computer or looking at your iPhone or, or sitting in front of a TV by yourself at night ever. If that's the case, give no quarter to sexual immorality. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Just stop and let that sink in for a minute. Those are the words of Jesus on this matter. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So according to Jesus, this is serious stuff. And, and I would just tell you that as you fight the good fight, which I, I, I pray you will, because at some level, this is every man and every woman's battle, because ultimately this is a battle for the heart, okay? Uh, do go radical here in fighting temptation. There may be temptations you need to remove, maybe several degrees you need to remove from your life, safeguards you need, accountability you need. But, but I want to get to the core of the issue here, and that is, instead of trying to forego sexual temptation by your own willpower— right? By your own willpower, just fighting, 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 right? Uh, oftentimes, there's a void in people's lives, and that's, what, that's what's going on, right? There's like a deep void. Well, make sure that you're looking to Jesus Christ here. Make sure you're filling that void with Christ, because He really can, and alone can satisfy your heart, such that there's not that void. Now, that doesn't mean there will never be a temptation. Doesn't mean that there won't be a temptation when you least expect it, because that can happen. But fill up that void with, with, with Jesus Christ. And then fight, uh, flee, give, give no quarter to this area of sin. Now, if this was just a moral story about sexual purity, what we'd see here in this story is Joseph being rewarded for his steadfastness and his fidelity to God and to Potiphar, right? And for his integrity. Uh, somehow Joseph would get an award or, uh, you know, all, you know, uh, all would go well. So if this was just moral, a moral story, if this was the main point even of the story, what we would see is a great reward for Joseph, right? You know, one day he would resist uh, and then cross some kind of finish line and, and all would be well. But that is not what we see here. Look at verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Notice the um, 
the xenophobia that she appeals to, that basically the racism that she appeals to here. He, he came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Now, I, I find it interesting here, if you remember back in chapter 37, Joseph's clothes just tend to be a big deal in this whole story, right? Like his robe was kind of a key marker of the story in chapter 37. And now we see here in, in chapter 39, his garment is a key part of the story, right? I mean, the, you know, we wear clothes to protect us, basically. And, and so now what had once protected him in the hands of, of Potiphar's wife is being used as a tool to accuse him falsely against him. So she hung onto that garment. She laid it up next to her until her master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So, so notice here how she manipulates Potiphar. First, she tries to get the staff on her side and, and by, by appealing to their xenophobia and, ra- and kind of racial tendencies that she knew they may have against a Hebrew, particularly one who, an outsider, you know, who, had, who was in charge, right? So she manipulates them. And then she accuses her husband Potiphar of being foolish. So she tries to put him on the defensive by, by bringing in a Hebrew and, and elevating him to a point of power such that he would try to abuse her. So she's trying to force Potiphar's hand. And here's what we read in verse 19. As, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. So we've spent some time looking at Joseph's stability, right? His, his spiritual stability, his emotional stability, and his moral stability, which came from his spiritual stability, as did his emotional. But now let's, let's look at God's presence in Joseph's life. Where, where was God through the downs and then the ups and then the downs of Joseph's life? Well, what about that, that first down of being betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery? Well, this is, this is really the key to this whole chapter, I believe, and that's verse 2, and that is the Lord was right there with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Well, what about the down of being falsely accused? And I hate that. I mean, out of the things in this world that I think are terrible, I'd put being falsely accused right up there about at the top, okay? Um, I mean, it's right up there with, 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 with my mom's squash, right, when I was a kid. Um, it's terrible. Sorry, mom. I love her, but her squash is awful. I had to eat it every night. Um, falsely accused and, and then thrown into prison. But we read, where was God? The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. 
The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So here you see Joseph, not, like I said, you know, chained to the wall, you know, or chained upside down. You, you see him somehow still in prison. He can't, he's not a free man, but he's running the prison, which means he now has access to all of the people who are in the king's prison. And he is still flourishing, keeping his head up, worshiping God, knowing God, and making him known in prison. So the Lord was with Joseph in the good times and the bad times and gave him success in both Potiphar's house and in prison. Now, this does remind me, this is kind of a side note, but we should pray for people, particularly Christians, who are unjustly in prison. And, and there are Christians in prison who are, are there because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We, we just got word from Sydney, who we just sent out a couple weeks ago, about a, 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 a young wife and mother that we've been praying about. We've been praying for her. She's in the, in the same area where Sydney is serving, who was arrested because it became known, actually her mother turned her in, that she was a follower of Jesus Christ. And she just got her sentence of five years for her faith of confinement. Now we, we ought to pray for this young lady. Don't know her name. But we need to pray that the Lord would make his presence very known to her. You know, I was talking recently with my, my sister who's had um, uh, over the years a ministry of uh, a ministry with women who have um, been abused around the world. And one, one thing that my sister's noted is that in most of these cases, those who knew the Lord actually sensed his presence with them in their greatest moment of trial. Doesn't mean it was easy, and, and they still go through uh, a lot of uh, hardship later, but, but in places like um, Nigeria and Rwanda, where people have been really abused for their faith, um, often at that moment of assault, actually, God just made his presence known to them, and it kind of got them through it. They still had to recover, and even often in the recovery, they've str struggled more with PTSD and all that kind of stuff, because it's easy to forget that, but that the Lord is with them. We need to pray that God would just reveal himself in very unique ways to those who are incarcerated and, and wrongly attacked for their faith. But that's what the Lord did for Joseph. He was with Joseph. So, so where did Joseph get this stability, this spiritual and emotional and moral stability? Well, God's presence with Joseph was the foundation for that stability and, and, and the flourishing that we see in, in chaos in his life. And certainly this was connected to Joseph's side of devotion to the Lord. In fact, in the book of Genesis, we, we, we see that Joseph is actually the only character in the book of Genesis to be said to be filled with the Spirit of God. It was actually Pharaoh who noted that in Genesis chapter 41, verse 38. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And as he has promised to us, He also will give us that presence. He's given us His Spirit in the ups and in the downs of our lives. You know, in the beginning of His gospel, Matthew uh, introduces Jesus and explains uh, the, the meaning of the name of Christ that we often remember at Christmas, 
that is Emmanuel, but by, by saying, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means the very meaning of that name is God with us. He, he is with us through Christ. At the very end of Matthew, Jesus promised his disciples, right after he gave them that, that commission to take the gospel to the nations, which was going to entail plenty of suffering, Jesus said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ is in our hearts. He is with us. The very meaning of his name, Emmanuel, means God with us. And we know that Jesus said to his disciples, it's better for you, for, for you if I go because I'm going to send you my spirit who's going to actually live within the heart of every Christian who, um, who, who has a, real, a true relationship through faith with, with God. Let me, let me just challenge you today. If, if you don't know him, if you've never really from your heart trusted in Christ, Today could be the day that you, you repent, you turn from, from following after uh, your sins, after trying to find, filling up that void in your heart, right, through, through sin or self-worship, and you turn to Christ and believe that he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. Today could be the day that he comes in your heart and, and lives with you, and his spirit comes in and opens up your, the eyes and regenerates you, baptizes you spiritually, Right? And, and, and you have a relationship with the living God, that could be today. I, I, got, I got some really good news this week. Uh, to be honest with you, something I've been praying for for years, and I had started to give up hope for. And as I, I had a, a friend, and I've shared with you about Mike. It's been years, I think, since I said anything about him. But this is an old college buddy of mine who became a skeptic probably about 15 years ago, maybe almost 20 years ago. Uh, and, and, and basically, he, he never claimed atheism, but he said he was an agnostic with atheist leanings. He was somebody that I knew as a Christian in college. So that was a real struggle for me, even theologically. How do I make sense of this? Because Mike blasphemed God. He was very, very angry with God. Okay? He, he, I mean, he, we spent hours going around and around the whole problem of evil. And, and suffering. And in his mind, God ordained sin and suffering and was the author of evil. So he took, he took um, uh, the doctrine of, of, of predestination and sovereignty um, and, and, and basically threw steroids on it and took it way too far to the point where God was responsible for all of the suffering of humanity, and he had no choice. In fact, he, he would rage against God for reprobating him, for choosing to not give him faith for damning him without giving him a choice, all right? And, and, and he meant it. And half of the time, and I didn't know this, half of the time he was living in terror of burning. The other half of the time he was raging against God for predestining him to hell. How could this, and, and, and the problem was Mike had spent time in the Word. So he, I mean, he turned everything against us, and it became very, very difficult to interact. He was just so angry. And, uh, and, and, and there was a time, probably about six years ago, where he told me that I wasn't his friend, and we weren't friends anymore. Um, and, and then about three years ago, I heard from him again, and uh, he was on a, on a road trip on I-10, and so I, I just dropped what I was doing, drove up to Crestview, and met him for a couple hours, tried to reestablish a relationship, and, and then, of course, it, the conversation turned back into his, his anger again, and, and just, 
you know, he's about as diehard a skeptic as as I've ever known. So I got a call from Mike out of the blue, hadn't talked to him in over a year, on Thursday, and and I was in the middle of something, and when I just saw his name, I thought, ah, I got to answer this, ah. Because I would get emails over the years that were setups, you know, I want, yes or no, is God sovereign over everything that happens? Yes or no? And I, you know, you know where it's going. I'm like, um, you know, I, I, it's a setup for, for another attack. And, and so I, I picked up the phone. And I said, hey, Mike, good to hear from you. Uh, hey, I've got a meeting in like five minutes. He says, hey, Troy, we can keep this short and you can call me back later. But I have some good news. And, and three weeks ago, God saved my soul. And he says, as he gets off the phone, he says, faith makes the entire difference, Troy. So I got back on the phone with him that night, and he wept over the wickedness of who he had been. And his point was, all of these things I said, that was wicked. I was wickedly ranting against God. It was unbelief in my heart, and it was evil. And and God has overwhelmed me with his grace. I have discovered for the first time faith, and that God is merciful. God is sovereign. He's not denying that. God is merciful. Brothers and sisters, God answers prayer. So don't quit praying for people that you think are beyond hope, okay? People who are mad at God, people who are like, I am running as far as I can the other way. And Mike wasn't okay with just that. He was doing his best to take me with him and take other people with him into the world of skepticism, okay? I mean, it offended him that I believed in a sovereign and good God. And now he's just like a, he, he said, Troy, last week I went to the church and, church and for the first time in my life had communion. And he started weeping again. Uh, he's discovered what it means to have a relationship with God through faith. And that's joyful. So my prayer for those of you who don't yet know God for real, or for those of you who are young in your faith, or for those of you who are old in your faith, is, is that this week you will enjoy God and stop running to lesser things to try to fill up that void. You know, enjoying God for the Christian, in the life of the Christian, it takes intentionality. What that means is that as you're going about your life, you need to be looking for Him in creation and, and in His Word and, and even in the activities and in the, his, his directing of, of, your, of your daily life. It, it takes repentance daily of sin. Not to get saved again. Jesus did it all on the cross. You're, you're saved once and for all through genuine faith, right, in Christ. But in this relationship that we have, it's often, um, we often quench the Spirit through our sin. And so for me, I, daily, I, I have to ask Him to forgive me of sin because of my relationship with Him. And, and, and just to look back at the cross in, in faith. And it takes a focus on Scripture in prayer. This is God's self-revelation to us. So if you're thinking, man, I honestly haven't been enjoying God very much, and I'm not sure, I mean, I know a lot about Him, but I'm not sure how much I know Him. It's not rocket science, folks. Read the Bible. It's His revelation. Just keep reading it. Keep reading it until there's a breakthrough. And let me encourage you as well, keep pursuing prayer. Keep talking to Him. And, and if you're struggling, if you feel like, man, I do, but I just feel like there's a, a, a block there, like I'm not just feeling the joy of His Spirit in me, let me encourage you to start with thankfulness and praise. 
Because I think we all spend a lot of our prayer life asking for stuff, and we should. We should make our requests known to God. But let me encourage you to start with thanking Him. And, and, and often I find thanksgiving leads to praise. So thanking Him for who He is, for just the, the, the blessings in your life, because we are a blessed people. There's a lot to thank Him for, okay? Um, a beautiful creation, um, provision like no one else has ever had when you look at the history of the world just about, you know, air conditioning, um, the clothing, uh, cheap clothes. Joseph's day, I mean, clothes was like a car, buying a set of clothes. Like most people had one set, okay, maybe two. Um, ours are pretty cheap. Um, okay, we can, get, we can get a lot more creative than that, where we live in a beautiful place, the, the homes we live in, the families that love us, um, uh, 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 freedom to worship Christ. There's a lot to be thankful for. What Jesus did for us on the cross. And, and the more I give him thanks, it's like yanking out, twisting on a, on a rusted faucet. You know, I might not have that feeling. I might be fixated on my problems where I wish God would show up. When I start cranking on that faucet, the more the Holy Spirit flows and, and praise flows, it's just more natural to, 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 to thank him and to praise him. So start with that. Start with thanksgiving and praise if you're struggling in your, in your prayer life. And eventually you can get to petition, but start with, start with thanksgiving. But you could be in pain or in a prison, and you could enjoy God. You could be living a, a normal life in Niceville and soar with God's presence in your life. This isn't just for people who are persecuted. You could be far away at college or, or deployed on the other side of the world, surrounded by people who don't follow after Jesus, and, and the Lord will be with you in your heart. Psalm 139 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Imagine that. Someone who fell off a boat or a ship drowning. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I hope that you're encouraged by God's presence in Joseph's life, and I hope you'll be encouraged this week to recognize and pursue the presence of God in your, your own life. But finally, and as we close, I think it would be helpful for us to consider God's providence, His hand of providence in Joseph's life. Now, I don't know, as you have thought about this story or read it, if you've ever wondered, why didn't Potiphar have Joseph executed? You know, prisons weren't as, as, as common back then in this time of, of life as they are today. Prisons are expensive to maintain. Most people, most slaves never went to prison. They were simply executed for bad conduct. So why in the world wouldn't Potiphar have just executed Joseph for mocking, for, for, for trying to seduce or maybe even rape his wife? That's death penalty business. Well, we don't know for sure. Maybe Potiphar didn't exactly entirely trust his wife's story. Didn't exactly say who he was angry with. He might have known that she kind of had him, right? I mean, he did live with the woman, all right? Uh, we don't know. Maybe he didn't entirely 
believe all this stuff. Maybe let's stick Joseph in the king's prison, right, where the king's prisoners are held, and let's kind of see what happens. Let's, let's, let's kind of see if more information comes to light. I don't know, but I can tell you what we do know. Joseph wasn't killed. He wasn't off. He ended up in the king's prison because of the providence of God. See, we see God's hand of providence all over this story. We see it in Joseph being sold to Potiphar, a man who is high in Pharaoh's court. We see God's providence in, God, in, in blessing Joseph and, and Potiphar and while, while he was in Potiphar's home as, as chief steward. We, we see God's hand of providence in Joseph being thrown into the king's prison, the king's prison, right? Where we see God's hand of providence blessing Joseph in the king's prison where he had access to Pharaoh's prisoners so that he might, have, might years later be sprung from prison straight into Pharaoh's court to save two nations, which included the bloodline of Christ. And I think one thing we need to remember is, is that providence isn't luck. Sometimes we, we think of providence when things go well. Man, that was providential. Almost had a wreck. You know what? If he had a wreck, that was providential too. Because God is sovereign, and there's mystery in providence. But Psalm 105 records God's providential work in and through Joseph's life for a greater purpose. And that's the key. That's what God is doing through his providential work in all of our lives. He's moving us towards a greater purpose. He is accomplishing a greater purpose in history, a redemptive work in, in, in history. But Psalm 105 verse 16 recounts this, this, the big picture here of providence. It says, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions. And we're going to see in weeks to come the, 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 the continuation of the, this, this, this story. Let me remind you of something that we looked at um, a couple weeks ago uh, from Southern Seminary's Abstract of Principles written in 1858 about God's providence. And remember, God's providence doesn't always mean ease for His people, but it means there is a reason and a purpose and a good end. The Abstract of Principles says, God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and events, yet so as not in any wise to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. Now there is mystery here. How does God do that? But God providentially works through the lives and the decisions and the actions of sinful fallen people to fulfill his purposes. And that's the big picture here of the story of Joseph. That's the big picture of Genesis 39. It's God's hand of providence and his, his presence with Joseph, even as he's going through this storm. Pastor Vodi Bauckham writes, the most comforting words in this chapter are, 
God was with Joseph. That phrase is the key to understanding Genesis 39. The message here is not, quote, resist sexual temptation so that you too can end up in a prison. The message here is the providence of God. God is with his people. Joseph finds himself in slavery away from the land of promise, far from his father's house, but not beyond the Lord's reach. He continues, as a pastor, I've had to walk with people during some of the most difficult circumstances imaginable. During those times, it is incredibly comforting to know that we serve a God who is there. My son was falsely accused and is on his way to prison. Where is God? He's in the same place. He was when Joseph was falsely accused and sent to prison, which, by the way, is the same place he was when his only begotten son was falsely accused and sentenced to death, end quote, the providential hand of God. Where I hope this encourages you and comforts you today, and I'm going to just leave this with two questions, and that would be this. What, what might God be doing in your life behind the scenes of your pain? And second, what good work might he be preparing you for? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us an awe and a confidence in your mysterious providential dealings with us and with all people as you orchestrate your plan of redemption throughout history. Keep our eyes on you, Lord. Keep us optimistic and hopeful, fueled by a true encounter, true encounters with your presence. Lord, we thank you that here in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we have that through faith in Christ, through the indwelling of your Spirit in our lives. I pray that today and this week, each of us, each person in this room would would walk um, in submission um, with your Spirit. Lord, help us to seek after you And Lord, I pray that you would reveal more of yourself to each of us, especially those of us who are hurting today. I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.